Have you ever found yourself in a situation that looked like one thing, but suspiciously also looked like another? Um, you see this all the time in sitcoms and television shows, and I was remembering and thinking about one show in particular um, from like the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, Seinfeld, uh, which is the whole premise of the show is peculiar situations. And so there's one situation where Jerry Seinfeld is driving uh, down the street in New York City, and he comes to a stoplight, and he has an itch on the tip of his nose, on the edge of his nose. And so he reaches to scratch that itch, and just at the same time, a cab pulls up next to him, and in the backseat of the cab is a woman that he is trying to date. She's a model, and he's trying to, to date her, and she sees him, but from her perspective, that scratch quickly turned into something a little bit more. Uh, it kind of looked like he was knuckle deep looking for something special. And um, so the whole rest of the show is him trying to convince her that it was just a scratch. And so um, it's kind of a crude illustration for this morning. So let me try to woo you back with something a little bit different. Um, what if I were to show you this picture, okay? Um, it's kind of an interesting looking picture. What about the next one? Um, okay, there's another one. And then how about the third picture? Okay, so interesting, interesting young couple here. Um, this is my wife and I, and it's about 10 years ago. And if I were to show you this picture, you probably thought that maybe we were going through some kind of midlife crisis, uh, going through a phase. And you probably wouldn't really know or understand exactly what was happening here. Um, the truth is that we were actually at a party. It was a life group party. So this was our life group when we were uh, um, baby Christians. We were kind of growing up. We were, had just gotten married, um, I think, a year or two before that. We had just had our first child. And so this was our life group. The uh, a group of people that we had been walking with for a, a, a long time. We got to grow in relationship. And then we used to also have these parties called rock band parties. Uh, if you remember the game rock band, um, and we would have these parties and we would theme them sometimes. And so we would dress up like rock stars or whatever. And, uh, and we would come to the party and we'd play rock band together and have food and just have a lot of fun together. So this particular one was a goth band party, so we all dressed up in goth. I won't show you all of my friends' photos because they probably would not be my friend anymore. So, <laughs> but this is my wife and I. We're dressed uh, in goth or whatever, and, uh, or sometimes we'd have a punk band party, and so we would dress like punk rockers. So all that to say, context and perspective is important when we're addressing situations, when we're trying to learn about a situation, and that's especially true for Scripture. When we look through the Bible, when we look at the Bible, we have to remember and interpret it in light of context and perspective. It's hermeneutics and exegesis, essentially. And so we interpret Scripture within itself. So we look at what's happening before. We look at what's happening after. We interpret passages in light of all of Scripture, not just certain portions. When we isolate certain passages, we can get ourselves into trouble, and we ultimately can misrepresent the truth that God is trying to teach us, uh, and we, get, we can get it all wrong. It can get us into trouble. And so today's passage is a hard passage and it's kind of one of those passages where if you isolate it, 
and you just read it at face value, just in itself, we miss the entire meaning of what Jesus is trying to teach us. In fact, you might think that if we read it, then Christians are vampires and zombies. And we obviously know that that's not true. But if you're visiting with us, we want to especially make sure that you understand that. We are not zombies and vampires. We're not going to make you drink goblets of blood or anything like that. Um, so this, that's important for us to consider today. And so I want to encourage you to open up the, your Bible. If you have a uh, chair, uh, there's Bibles in the backs of the chairs around the bottoms of the chairs. Uh, if you don't have God's Word, you're welcome to open it with us. Uh, the scriptures will be on the screen. I just want to make sure that you follow along, that you see what I see, that, uh, so that we are reading God's Word together. So John chapter 6, uh, verses 25 through 71 uh, and we started going through the book of John during the Christmas season. So we've actually been in it since December. And we're going to keep going through the entire book of John. And it's going to take us all the way into June. We'll take a little break at Easter um, for a series that's sp special for Easter. And then we'll finish out the book of John, take us into summer. And then we have an exciting summer series that you guys will help us plan. You'll learn about that more uh, in, the next, in the coming weeks. But for now, we are going to jump into John chapter 6. And before we get into the word, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather together as your church, uh, as a worshiping community who is longing to seek truth and, and know you in a special and particular way. I pray, God, that as we go through your word, as we continue in our worship through giving and singing and all of these things that we do to glorify your name, I pray, God, that you would speak to us in a special way today. I pray, God, um, that you would help us to hear your word, your truth for what it is and all that you have for us. I pray, God, that if there's anything that falls out of my mouth that isn't from you, that it would, it would fall short and that everything that is yours would penetrate our hearts and our minds in a deep way in profound and miraculous way. Father, this is your word. Help us to teach it with, with uh, reverence and that we would respect it and be in awe of you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're moving through the Gospel of John, which was written by the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples as attested throughout all of the Gospels. And especially in this gospel in particular, he is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so this uniquely qualifies John to give us a perspective of Jesus. He was in his inner circle. Uh, he spent a greater part of every day, every hour of his ministry, of Jesus's ministry with him. So he brings a, a special perspective you might remember last week, Pastor Gary preached through verses 1 through 24, and Jesus did two very significant miracles, unbelievable miracles. He, he caters a meal to over 5,000 people, probably some estimates of 7,500 up to 20,000 people, using only five barley loaves and two fish. Um, they had really good fish sandwiches. And then he walks across the Sea of Galilee. And this isn't a short trek. This is probably a couple miles across, uh, across the sea, and he walks across it. And so um, at this point in the passage, 
the disciples, the crowd that has gathered, they're trying to figure out how Jesus made it to the other side um, because he wasn't in the boat when the disciples departed and there was only one boat. So they're trying to put two and two together. And so we pick up here at John chapter 6, verse 25. Let's read. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you. When we see very truly, sometimes it says truly, truly. It essentially just means listen up, pay attention. You are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to, earn, to do to do the works of God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you, will, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and will raise him up that last day. So I want to, this is a huge chunk of scripture, and so what I would like to do is break it up into three sections, give you some points, uh, um, some comments about people and Jesus, and then we'll move to the next section. And the first thing that I want to point out is that Jesus knows your heart and he's not surprised. If you look at verses 25 through 27, we might be able to fool uh, and hide certain things from each other, but we're not fooling Jesus. He sees your heart. He knows your heart. And here we see thousands of people seemingly captivated by Jesus. Seemingly captivated by Jesus. And his teaching, he's performing miracles beyond imagination. These people have never seen anything like this before. Yet they're so focused on filling their stomach that they fail to see the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is demonstrating tremendous power over creation. And yet this crowd can't seem to get past what he's doing. He's filling their stomachs. He's got food. So they're, they're following him. We can be just as guilty of this today. We are fixated on self-preservation and living as long as we can. We'll do anything to do it. We will wrap ourselves with wraps. We will take oils. We will take medication. We'll avoid eggs because, the, because people tell us that eggs are unhealthy. And then we'll eat eggs because other people say that they are healthy. We avoid red meat. We eat red meat. 
We drink coffee. We don't drink. All these things are intended to help us live longer. And we will jump on the bandwagon of anything if, it thinks, if we think that we will actually live longer because we do it. Even though we're getting older, we spend so much of our time trying to look and act younger. But the truth is, you'll spend more time today uh, thinking about ways and making decisions toward the ends of living a happy life today rather than thinking about living a, a happy and healthy eternal life. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's good stewardship of our bodies to take good care of ourselves. But I think we can sometimes spend more time worrying about things that God has already said that he would take care of. And when we take good things and make them ultimate things, or it pulls our focus away from God, those become idols in our lives. And I think this is an area where we can fall into idol worship when it comes to body image and thinking about uh, our health and, and living a long life. The goal of Jesus is not necessarily to make our lives happy and healthy, but to be holy and eternal. The goal of Jesus is not to make our lives happy and healthy, but holy and eternal. And Jesus is performing miracles in front of thousands of people, and it's not to necessarily to make their lives better. Of course, their lives become better. If he heals a lame person who can't walk, okay, they, they will be able to walk. They'll be able to get a job and make money and feed themselves, and they don't have to be a beggar at the, uh, on the side of the street. But the main focus is that we would see the miracles from God through Jesus, and we would glorify Jesus. We would see how powerful and strong he is, and we would glorify God and believe in his testimony that he is the Son of God sent to earth to die, to be resurrected, so that people who are called by God can have salvation and eternal life through him. The goal of Jesus is not to make our lives happy and healthy, but to be holy and eternal. Certainly Jesus makes our lives better. When we're healed, he still heals today. He heals diseases. He heals addictions. But those are temporary and small glimpses in comparison to the eternal healing we'll experience in the glory of heaven. So the goal of Jesus is to make our lives eternal with him in the glory of heaven. The second thing is that you are unable to do what Jesus has already done. Jesus starts talking about the bread of life, and immediately these, these people gathered start asking, what do we do? What do we do to, to get this bread of life? What do we do to earn eternal life? So are we saved by works or are we saved by faith? We're saved by both. We're saved by faith through the works of Jesus. It's not our works. There's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. But we depend and we have faith in the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Kind of a trick question, sorry. But we are saved both by our faith in the works of Christ. Everything about this passage points us to the cross. The crowd doesn't even see it yet. But they, why did God send Jesus into the world? He sent Jesus to be the sacrificial lamb, atoning for the sin of mankind, so that whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. The only works that can be done to wipe away our, your sin or my sin was completed on the cross. 
when he took the wrath of God and died the death that you should have died and then was raised to life, the work was already done by Jesus. You are saved by faith in the work of Jesus. The third thing is that Jesus is a feast of grace. If we look at verses 30 through 40, we tend to be a proof is in the pudding kind of people. And seeing is believing at times. But even for those of us who have a deep and growing faith in Jesus, we go through seasons of doubt. We struggle with that. And that's normal. It's okay as long as we don't stay there. That's why it's important for us to fill our minds and our hearts with the word of God because we need to be preaching against doubt. We need to be preaching against the enemy of God who wants to tell us lies. Jesus is a feast of grace. This crowd is starting to get skeptical. Jesus, uh, guy is starting to say some hard things and they're like, why should we believe you? As if multiplying fish wasn't enough or multiplying bread and feeding thousands of people wasn't enough. As if walking on water wasn't enough. Jesus, yeah, Jesus replies by saying that his father gives the true bread from heaven. And, and he is that bread. Jesus makes it clear that not only he is the bread from heaven, but also that he is the bread of life. And he will satisfy every hunger and thirst to know God on a personal level. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And not only is this profound that he is saying that he was sent by God from heaven, but he is also claiming divine oneness with God Almighty and referencing the I am statements that we see in Exodus and in Isaiah. The, this is hard for the, this crowd to hear. These are primarily Jewish people. And so this would have been flirting with blasphemy. Jesus is making some profound claims of divinity and oneness with God. And that's when this situation starts to turn a corner. So we'll pick back up at verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at that last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Here again, we're confronted with the condition of people and a picture of how God is bringing about salvation to the world through Messiah. And believe it or not, this is how God chose to save us. I think it's somewhat ironic that uh, these ancient Jews are grumbling about manna from heaven 
And then their ancestors, a hundred, several hundred years later, are still grumbling about bread, the bread of life from heaven. You know, we never seem to be content with the provision of God. In a way, it just reinforces the nature of the human desire for self-preservation. We think over and over how this is going to benefit me today. You see, the manna that fell from heaven was a temporal salvation. It was temporary salvation from starvation. In the same way, they are expecting their coming Messiah. They're expecting a Messiah, but they're, they're expecting him. They're longing for him to bring them temporary salvation from government oppression, from the oppression of other people around them. They want freedom, and they're looking for a king that is going to drive that force. They're looking for a, a Messiah to conquer kingdoms so that they can be free in this life. Yet they fail to see that Jesus cannot only give them freedom from slavery in this life, but also for all eternity. Jesus changes our perspective. You see that through the life of the Apostle Paul. He saw, he saw every opportunity to share the gospel. It didn't matter if he was in prison or in chains or he was sick. He was still commissioned and on mission to share the gospel with all, with anyone who would hear. He was never bound by a worldly perspective. He was free. Even when he was in chains, he was free. He found rest knowing that God had ordained him and commissioned him to bring the gospel. So he is Jesus. He is Emmanuel. He is God in the flesh among us. And this is how God has chosen to save us. If we see this and believe this, we grumble less about the things that don't matter in light of spending eternity in the glory of our Father in heaven. Sickness, poverty, death, or any other hardship that we can face means less and less when we are captivated by Jesus. The next thing is that the Father draws and Jesus saves. We see this in verses 44 through 51. I remember being in my early 20s, and I was addicted to work. I would work 70 or 80 hours a week and not blink an eye. I would skip meals because I was just so focused on work. And then I'd come to the weekend, and I would party. I would drink myself silly all weekend long and then start that cycle again. Monday through Friday, 80 hours a week, Saturday and Sunday, drink, drink, drink. And it was a cycle that I continued on for a long time. I grew up in the church, uh, walked away from it when I was in my later teen years and early 20s. And I knew after a, a long season of, uh, of sinfulness and um, losing control that I continued to have uh, the whispering of God in my ear, drawing me back. The enemy of God was wooing me. He wanted me hard. And it wasn't easy to turn away from that. But God just kept whispering and inviting, whispering and inviting. Eventually, I came to a place where I knew that I had to stop. And I had to sever friendships. And I started going back to church uh, it took a while. There was times in church I was still drunk from the night before. And it took 
a long season for me to continue to just change and cut certain toxic things out of my life. And eventually I kind of came to a place where I was, I was no longer living how I was living before. I was getting myself together, getting my act together. And eventually I met Stacy. And you would think that that would have sort of made the situation better, but my wife Stacy was an atheist at the time. And so that sort of perpetuated more sin. But it didn't keep me from going to church. I kept going to church, kept sitting under God's word, kept hearing the truth proclaimed, kept hearing the whisper of God, come to me, go to Jesus. And God eventually changed my heart. And he eventually changed Stacy's heart. He actually was working in both of our lives at the same time. We had started going to church together. Even though she was an atheist, I still invited her to church. She came to church with me for a while, and then she had remembered a church that she uh, had heard of in her hometown. We had a little bit of a long-distance relationship. We lived about an hour apart. And eventually I started going to her church, and that was where we got connected with such a solid group of people, uh, our life group, people who became lifelong friends, and we just started growing together. And we never really had spiritual conversations with each other, so we never knew where we, each other was at. And eventually I was meeting with a pastor about serving on their worship team. And uh, God had brought me to the place where I was so convicted of my sin that I couldn't live another day without turning away. And that pastor prayed with me, and I... I, at that moment, I had released everything to God. I had ran, I, I turned to Jesus for salvation. I placed my trust and hope in salvation in him, and God freed me. I felt the rush of the Holy Spirit consume me. God did a miraculous thing in that day. And it took everything for me to not break down and weep in that guy's office. I had rushed out got to the car and just started crying and wailing. I was so sick over my sin, but I felt so free. I was so overwhelmed with just hope and joy, knowing that God had set me free. And then I was grieving because I'm thinking, my gosh, how am I going to tell Stacy? What am I going to do? How is she going to understand this? And I sat there for a few minutes and just kind of went over my head, like, how am I going to tell her? And so finally I had just resolved. I said, I just got to tell her the truth. These were some profound things. I experienced things that were supernatural, that were beyond my mind's comprehension. And I said, I just got to tell her. And so I went home and I told her everything that happened. And she said, I she said that she was wrestling with conviction. She was feeling convicted over sin. She wanted to change. She just didn't know how. So that day, God changed our lives forever. She surrendered her life to Christ. The Father draws your heart to Jesus. He draws your heart to Jesus. He will give you signs. He will give you wonders. He will Stacy heard conversations, spiritual conversations that she wasn't looking for. And they were testimonies of faith in Jesus Christ. She was seeing weird signs just driving everything that was pointing her to Jesus. 
She just knew that God was drawing her heart. God will use things like that to draw your heart. It's not coincidence. It's not coincidence. God wants you. He's drawing you. You just have to decide. You make that decision to turn to Jesus or to keep running the other way. The other thing we see in this passage is that once you're Jesus, once you belong to Jesus, once God has drawn you, you are Jesus's and he is yours. There's nothing that you can do to separate that love. You can run full blast to the gates of hell and he's running faster. He is stronger and he will pull you back into the fold. The Father draws and Jesus saves. The other thing is that Jesus said offensive things. I think we often paint Jesus as some hippie dude who loves everybody, never offends anybody, and is just as a happy good dude whose aim is to share love, joy, and peace. We have paintings of Jesus in our churches and in our homes of him with a nice manicured beard and long sandy blonde hair. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible spoke truth and love, but sometimes the truth is hard to hear. The Jesus of the Bible once overturned tables in the temple because they had made it into a market, God's house, and he was righteously angry over that. Here in these passages, Jesus is starting to offend this crowd of people with his metaphor that he's claiming divinity, divinity, claiming he is from heaven, and then claiming that his flesh is the only means of salvation. It's almost as if Jesus is trying to see how far he can go with this metaphor before he starts driving people away. So he starts digging further and further. Preachers call this space maker sermons. It's when the church is starting to get too full and you need to empty some seats, so you start preaching hard sermons and then people leave. But now we just go multi-site. So he keeps digging further and further. And in this next section, Jesus goes all in. So if, you're, if you were to take this section apart from the whole of Scripture, you would think that we are zombies or vampires. So hear this not as a literal, literal uh, statement, but as a metaphorical, literal statement. So he, Jesus is using a metaphor to teach a literal truth. Metaphor to teach a literal truth. Picking up at verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at that last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. 
So he's teaching in the synagogue while he's saying all this. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is the word of our Lord. Hard teaching. Hard teaching. The first thing about this is that this foreshadows the Passover meal with the twelve. No one actually feasted on the, the, the flesh and blood of Jesus. If that was the case, then we would all be destined to hell. Feasting on the bread means to believe in faith that Christ died for you. The blood that poured out of Christ's body represents the atonement for sin. So drinking his blood means, to, means that the blood means to trust that the blood that was shed at the crucifixion has atoned for your sin. Feasting on the bread means to believe in faith that Christ died for you. You have triumphed over sin and death by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. By believing in faith that Jesus Christ died for you, you have conquered sin and death. The second thing is this foreshadows the death Jesus would soon die. The bread represents that body that Jesus would give to be crucified on the cross. So feast, uh, feasting on the bread. Oh, I totally messed up. I totally mixed myself up. So the first thing is that this foreshadows the Passover meal with the 12. No one actually feasted on the flesh and blood. Certainly Jesus was torn to pieces. Uh, but they, they, uh, Jesus broke bread and said, this is my body. He brought the cup, said, this is my blood, as symbols of his body and blood. Now, if you grew up Catholic, you might have uh, understood it that this somehow, through, they call it transubstantiation, that the body and blood actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. So when you take Holy Communion as a Catholic, you, the idea, the belief is that you're actually consuming the body and blood of Christ. As Protestants, we believe these to be symbols, and that's how Jesus taught that at Passover that when he broke the bread and brought the cup. 
The next thing is that Jesus uh, foreshadows the death, uh, that this foreshadows the death Jesus would soon die. So as I said, the bread represents the body that Jesus would give to be crucified. So feasting on the bread means to believe in faith that Christ died. The blood that was poured out of Christ's body represents atonement. So drinking his blood means to trust that the blood that was shed at the crucifixion has atoned for your sin. The, la- the, the next thing is that not everyone will respond favorably, favorably to the gospel. Not everyone that hears the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, will want to drop everything and attend your Bible study or uh, start coming to your church, start serving with you, start preaching the gospel. As I see it, people respond to the gospel in three different ways. The, the first way is they're either either by indifference or they just absolutely hate it. They either don't care or they don't like it. The next thing is that the next way is that you'll have some people who start off sort of on fire for the Lord, but over time the flame starts to die down and eventually it gets snuffed out. Usually by a person believing the lies of the enemy that God doesn't love them, that God isn't for them. They've usually encountered a trial or a situation that's hard to get through, and they don't see how God is going to bring them out of that. So their faith just dies away. The third way is that they respond favorably to it. The gospel begins to take root in their lives. Change starts to happen. And over the course of time, sometimes it's immediate, sometimes it's a slow, steady progress, but over over and over, they become to be more like Christ. Become to live for him, longing to study his word and to worship him. They become more and more like Jesus in everything they say and do. As followers of Jesus, our mission is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, all people, but ultimately it's not our responsibility to save people. Remember, the Father draws and Jesus saves. Our mission is to proclaim. We don't know who God has called. We don't know who God is drawing at any particular time. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel to anyone who will listen, anyone who will pay attention to us, but not everyone who hears will respond. Maybe not at that time. Maybe it's a later time. But our job is to proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. The last thing is that Jesus will not save whom the Father has not called. This, is, this can be a, a challenging word to hear for some people. Jesus, in the final passage, demonstrates his divine power of omniscience. It means that he's all-knowing. So he's using his divinity at this time. He knows the hearts of the crowd. He knows who, is his, who are his followers and who are against him. So Jesus reiterates that no one can come to him, meaning that no one can trust Jesus and be saved by him without first being called and drawn by the Father. That means salvation is entirely within the power of God the Father. Jesus knew who his true followers were and those who were along for the ride. This can be challenging because 
we kind of get into the weeds of the election and uh, knowing that God, there's some people who are just destined to not be saved. There's some people who are not going to be called by God to be saved by Jesus. For me, I find rest in that, particularly because I know that it's outside of my control. I am not God. I don't know what's best for God's kingdom. I don't know what's best for God's mission. And ultimately, I know that God is going to glorify his name among all people. And all people will bow before him and worship him. But there are some people who will be cast aside. But we don't know who they are. We don't know who God has called. Our mission, again, is to proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. We all have people in our lives who we know that they just don't know Jesus. And we're praying for them. We're interceding on their behalf. We have friends that are helping us pray for them. And keep praying. Keep praying. Because God does draw people. And I don't know if he, uh, how all of that works with responding to our prayers and calling people. And, but I know that he wants to hear us cry out to him for people. He wants us to reach out to people to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Our lives must be spent eternally focused. The things that we say and do today can impact generations of people. Generations of people. This past week, we buried my grandfather. He was a preacher for 44 years, pastored the same church that he uh, planted and, and merged with another church. Faithful preacher of the gospel. It was amazing to see uh, how one man impacted hundreds of people. And that's just the people who were at the funeral. There are more people that we know don't that we have no idea how how grandpa impacted them. We heard stories that we had never known before. People who testified to the goodness of Jesus in his life. He, he's leaving a legacy that didn't just impact his life today, but it's impacting lives for generations. Another cool thing about the funeral was that I got to see my Sunday school teacher. She's in her 90s now. I haven't seen her in 20 years. But there were truths that she instilled in me when I was a young boy. Even though I walk away from the church for a, a season, whether I was a prodigal or I just hadn't been drawn by God yet, I don't know. But there were things that I learned from her that has impacted my life forever. So we proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. Don't be stingy with the gospel. Proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. So there's a lot that we could say about this passage. This is a huge chunk of scripture. I have no idea where I'm at on time. I don't really care. <laughs> there, there's so much that could be said. But let me give you a couple things. Uh, so I want to try to be helpful 
Um, that's my aim and goal when I have the opportunity to preach. And so first, if you're a follower of Jesus, this message should remind us of the goodness and grace of the gospel. We should rejoice that we were drawn by the Father and saved by Jesus. We should sing hallelujah. We should shout it. Hallelujah that we don't have to endure what Jesus endured. Hallelujah that we have been saved by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. We should clap our hands. We should sing for joy. We should shout with praise and glory to our Father for all that he's done. Thank God for the people in your life that had an impact on you, that shared the truth with you. Have you ever taken the time to send them a note and remind them, 20 years ago, you said this to me, and it had such a significant impact. Tell them. People want to know, people are encouraged when they see the fruit of the work that they've done. And it keeps us going, keeps us going. Secondly, trust in the drawing of the Father and the saving of the Son, but willingly and freely share the gospel as if today was your last opportunity. What would you say to your one? So we, call it, we say the one, that's the people in our lives, one or a, a group of people that we are committed to um, intentionally pouring our lives into, spending our lives with them, sharing the gospel with them, and having gospel-centered conversations with them with the hopes that God draws them to Jesus. What would you say to your ones if you knew that today was your last opportunity? How would that impact the way you think in light of eternity? What if today was the day that you said something that triggered something, a momentum and force that allowed them to see Jesus for who he is and have hope in him and rest in salvation in him? What's that one thing that you would say today that could make that difference? Would it change your urgency? Would you have a new sense of urgency that I need to tell him, I need to tell her, the hope that I have in Jesus? Would it make you more bolder and more courageous in how you share the gospel with them and talk to them about sin and how Jesus can take away sin? How would that change our lives and the lives of the people around us? Lastly, there might be a few among us that, that God is calling you haven't yet sur surrendered your life to Jesus. But God is calling you and whispering to you, and you hear it. You're seeing signs and things that are just unexplainable. It's not coincidence. It is God calling and stirring your heart. And he's wanting you to turn to Jesus. He wants you to have hope and salvation through him alone. Will you respond to that today? Will you respond to that today? We're going to take time and sing. We're going to receive an offering, and we'll sing together as we close out the service. Let me pray.
Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, that even when it's complicated, um, you help us to see it and read it, interpret it. I pray, God, that that you would do a profound work among us, that you would help us to respond to the gospel call, that you would help us, uh, even as followers of Jesus, to be captivated by the work of Jesus, that you would renew in us uh, a deep affection, that you would see how profound grace is in our lives, how God saved us from so many things, how God called us to Jesus. Help us to have a new faith, a, a deeper faith because of your word today. Father, I pray for those among us who might not know you, that you would be stirring in their hearts and in their minds, that you would help them to be bold and, and to seek to take a next step of faith in you. Help us as a church to be diligent about calling people uh, to grace, that we would be on mission together as a body of believers. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.